0: Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Lord, thank you so much for gathering us here this morning. Um, We love you so much. And I just pray that as we move into this time of teaching, that you would um, just clear our mind of any distractions. Uh, Just let our um, hearts and minds be focused on you, God. Um, And I just pray that um, we would learn and and grow in our love for you this morning, God, and um, just celebrate you with our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Okay, there's like five people that are ha- doing well. Everyone else is quite silent. Thank you, Stephen. Um if you guys are, are sitting right here and you're looking for a seat, there's a few seats here in the front. Um, I promise no one up here bites, nor myself. So you might get spit on, I don't know if I'm talking, but um, other than that, we should be good. If you guys are wondering what happened, why we're back so far, uh, we've actually got some baptisms going on today. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty excited about that. Um, we're going we're gonna to have three people getting baptized, and, and it, just so you guys know, um, baptism is really a, a time of celebration for us, because we get to celebrate um, what Jesus has done in someone's life, and so uh, we're going to get to do that here, so I'm going to try uh, to the best of my ability to, to cut my time up here uh, shorter than usual this morning, uh, because as you guys know, uh, once we start diving into the Word and looking at things, I have a tendency to just get really excited and go for it and, and just talk for forever, and so, but anyway, for those of you guys that this is your first time time here this morning. Thank you so much for uh, visiting us at Alethe this morning. Um, we're excited that you guys are here. Uh, I, like I said earlier in the announcements, I'm Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I moved here about five and a half years ago with 18 other people uh, with a crazy dream to start a church uh, here in Gainesville that would proudly and boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done. And you guys here this morning are are really in reality the fruits of a lot of labor of a lot of different people who over the years have, have really surrendered Rendered a lot to both love Jesus well and see Him work through this church, and so as we're running out of chairs in here this morning, um, I would kindly tell you, don't worry, um, we've got old school seats up there in the balcony. Hey, balcony people, can you say woo-woo for me real quick? Yeah, what's up, guys? Thank you. Um, so this church used to belong to Trinity United Methodists, and then there was a guy named Steve Spurrier. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, he attended that church and left them a bunch of money and so they left this old dilapidated building and went to a much nicer one, and now we get to uh, rent it out from a local school that meets here, and we get to deal with the leaky roof and things that are falling apart and lights that don't really work properly whatever else, all to the glory of God. And so... Uh, we're excited that you guys are here this morning. Um, I want to take a second really quick and just talk about um, something that happened here yesterday. We had like 25 people show up here yesterday to clean this place. So I'm going to give you guys a hand. Like honestly, um, this place was filthy, dirty. Um, The bathrooms got clean. The floors got clean. The seats that you're sitting on, uh, the upholstery was cleaned on them. Things were moved. Things were thrown away. Um, Dead cockroaches that had died in corners of the the, the building were swept and gotten rid of. And so I just want to thank everyone that was here yesterday for hours and hours and hours on end cleaning this place and making it look nicer. Um, I greatly appreciate you guys taking out a Saturday and doing that. Okay, so... Without further ado, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses, which is what Allie um, read to you. And and as we kind of get ready to start this journey... As we work through the book of Romans, um, it's going to take us the better part of a year to get through this book. And some of you guys are like, how in the world could it possibly take you long? Other, other guys of you that have been here for a while, like how in the world is he going to get this done in a year, right? Because you know that we studied for the book of Matthew for about 13 years, even though the church is only four and a half years old. And so, um, but we're going to work through the book of Romans both in our time on Sunday morning corporately as a church, and then we're also gonna study it together corporately as a community group in our individual community groups this semester. And I want to spend a second kind of explaining to you, because many of us have many different church backgrounds. Um, many of us in here maybe have never even been to church before, but you met somebody on campus and they invited you out, or you met a co-worker, or you're here because you have a friend who's getting baptized this morning. And so I want to explain why we even do the, what we do with our studying of the scriptures. And so um, it, is, it is my belief and the other pastor's belief here at Aletheia that That what we need more than anything as we kind of battle the age that we're in and and fight to glorify God with our lives and make him known in our lives is that we need God's word penetrating our hearts, our minds, and our souls so that we can really, as I kind of think of it, and as C.S. Lewis once said that that this book is a, a secret communication from the heavens And from God's throne room to you and I, aliens sojourning in a foreign land, that daily there are things vying for our attention, vying for our affections, vying for what we might worship. And that spending time in God's word helps us to refocus on the things that truly matter. Helps us to refocus and remember who we are, who our God is, and who we are in light of what he's done for us. And so one of the best ways to do that is by publicly proclaiming the word of God as a church and publicly studying it together as a church. Now, I know that many of us have many different backgrounds, but what we do is here is we study books of the Bible line by line, word by word, verse by verse, and we go through the entire thing. And the reason we do that is because you need the whole counsel of God. That there is a tendency for us, and some of you guys are going to be able to relate with me here this morning, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for any season of time, we have a tendency to go to the parts of the Bible that we like the most. We have a tendency to say, oh, you know, I really like what, what, what um, David says in the Psalms. And so I'm going to spend all my time there, or I really like hearing about the the love of God for me, and so I'm going to spend a lot of time in the book of John especially so I can hear about God's great love for me, and I'm going to, you know, remind myself of that over and over again. But the Bible doesn't just teach us about the love of God. The love of God is secondary to the wrath of God, which Jesus rescues us from. And you can't have a proper understanding of how much the Father loves you if you don't first understand that you're under God's wrath if you are not in Christ. And so we study the Bible in whole so that we might have a more glorious picture of this God that we claim to worship, that we might have a more glorious picture of his son who willingly surrendered his life on our behalf. And so we're gonna study the book of Romans Verse by verse, and it's gonna take us months. I'm just being brutally honest with you. It's gonna take us some time, okay? But even in the last year alone by doing this, we have a better understanding of the book of Galatians. We've gone through the book of Habakkuk. We've gone through Philemon, and we've gone through the book of Jude. Some of you guys didn't even know that there was a book in the Bible called Philemon when we studied it over the summer. And yet we got a beautiful picture of what God kind of was doing even in in Roman times in dealing with the issues of slavery and how the church can address those issues, okay? And so... This morning, right, before we start looking at the text that Ali read to us earlier, I want to break down the book of Romans as an overview. I just want to give you a quick flyover view of everything that we're going to be looking at as we study this book together as a church, okay? Now, in my opinion, Romans is probably one of the most important New Testament letters— or epistles, depending on if you know the biblical language, it's probably one of the most important, if not the most important, New Testament letter, okay? And and if you guys don't agree with me, maybe you've probably heard of this guy named Martin Luther. He started the Protestant Reformation, and if you are here this morning, you are in a Protestant church because we are a byproduct of what he did a couple hundred years ago as he nailed his thesis to the, to the door of the Catholic Church and said, I think we've... Transgressed away from the scriptures and what they say, and we need to return to biblical truth. Here is what he says about the book of Romans and his commentary introduction to it. This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is pure. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while, not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily. As though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Now, Luther was a little partial to the book of Romans because it's in the book of Romans, chapter 13, where if you understand Martin Luther's life, He was a Catholic monk living kind of in in, in servitude as a monk. And as he was reading through Romans 13, excuse me, reading through Romans chapter 1, verse 17, God drastically and radically changed his life. That he went from knowing about God from the Catholic Church to knowing God as his Lord and Savior. to to knowing what it meant to understand that the righteousness of God could not be obtained by his own works, but only by the work of God through his son Jesus Christ on his behalf. And it radically changed the ways that he viewed God, it radically changed the way he approached the church, and it radically changed really the course of Christianity because so much of American Christianity and evangelicalism is because of the work of Martin Luther years and years and years ago. Now before him there was this famous theologian named Augustine of Hippo. Right? His life was radically changed in North Africa studying the book of Romans. Right? Romans chapter 13 forever changed the way that he viewed obedience to Christ and what it meant to follow after him. Some of the most used presentations of the gospel, if any of you guys have been involved in church culture for any season of time, are probably familiar with the, the, the saying, Romans Road, as a way to share your faith with people. That it's a, a way to logically share verses from the book of Romans to where you can completely share the good news of what Jesus Christ has done simply by using verses from the book of Romans. And the reason why the book of Romans is able to do all of this is because Paul, when he wrote this letter, sought out to answer all of the essential questions regarding God, life, and humans and how they relate to one another. Now, I am not saying here this morning that the book of Romans answers every single question human beings has. But it does answer all of the most essential ones, okay? And so as we start this study, right, in Romans chapter one, what we're gonna see in verse 16 and verse 17 is the theme of the entire letter. Okay, let me read that to you. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so the reason Paul is pinning this letter to the Romans, right? The letter is written in the first place because Paul has been delayed in visiting this church. And he wants to get there so badly. And so he's writing this letter to encourage them. And what he's writing to them is to remind them, don't do be ashamed of the good news that was shared with you that the the church the community that you are part of is built upon this gospel this good news of what Jesus Christ has done and you might be asking like why would he feel the need to even defend it right you know the church was so young why would he feel this need to to mention to the church at rome that he's in defense of it and the problem is is You know, I always find it amusing that we as humans think that intellectually we can grow past like spiritual heritages and things that we have. Because the very questions and objections that go towards God and the gospel today are many of the same objections that Paul faced in the first century. They just have a slightly different twist to them. And so for these non Jews, one of the biggest barriers to belief in God and the gospel was their intellectualism and their belief that they knew everything and that through philosophy and science they could understand everything. Does it sound similar to living in a university town? That, that human wisdom and knowledge can answer all of the questions that we have about life. Why would we need what is being shared with us from these 12 men that claimed they saw a guy raised from the dead? Now, not only that, but then the Jewish citizens of Rome were also rejecting the gospel because they saw it as an affront to the prophecies of God. And what Paul is going to attempt to do is answer those objections as well, reminding them that Christ must suffer and die at the hand of wicked men so that the prophecies might be fulfilled. See, Paul believes that the gospel speaks to all the heart questions of human beings, and he's going to answer them in a way that is actually logical and consistent and true. And that this message is not just for Jews, but for Greeks as well, and really the whole world. That's what he says there in verse 16. And he says that ultimately, though, that even though they share in this gospel that he's unashamed of it, that he's ultimately unashamed of it. Why? In verse 17, because it, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, is the righteousness of God. As let me explain to you, because some of you guys probably have no idea what I'm saying when I say that, okay? The Bible teaches you and I that, that we are born sinners, and because we are born sinners, we are in open rebellion to our creator. Okay, it's true of you, it's true of me. That, we're, that we've committed treason against the creator of the universe. That's what the Bible teaches, and that because of that, we stand condemned under the wrath of God. And the only way not to be condemned under the wrath of God is to be declared righteous or not guilty. The problem being, though, that you and I can't go from being unholy to holy on our own, right? One of my favorite illustrations of this is done by a guy in this church named Jake Gregory. And, and when we're talking with college students or out sharing our faith in student apartments here in the area, one of the things that is kind of easy to track is this idea of what, like, what your grade point average is, okay? And I know that most of you guys had a 13 GPA when you were coming into the, to the University of Florida. Um, believe it or not, I lived in a time where there weren't fake grades and you were actually on a four point scale, and what you got actually counted, okay? And some of you guys are, I can't believe this guy's calling me out right now, okay? Five doesn't exist, guys. They made it up, okay? It's because you were in a harder class, and it was harder, and you were getting Bs, but you were sad that your grades were bad, and so they bumped it up a little bit to make you feel better, okay? Okay, truth time with Kevin this morning, okay? All right? It's okay. So you, on, on, on the, the real scale, you would have had like a 3.6, 3.7. It's okay. Some of us are dumb. I barely broke, broke three. It's okay? All right? I would have never even dreamed of applying to this school because they would have laughed as they looked at my transcript. Okay? But the way this works is if you applied to the University of Florida and you were told that the standard to get into the university was a 4.0, and that means for four years at your high school, you have to achieve perfection from a grade point average standpoint. That you must get an A in every single class. And so the reality is, as you can plug along freshman year, sophomore year, and you hit that hard junior year, and you get a B in a class. Can you get into the University of Florida any longer? No. Right, because the standard is perfection. Right, the Bible's standard of perfection is called holiness. Okay, and so if you've got this standard right, it doesn't matter how many extracurricular activities you have. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are or how well you compare to the rest of your... You can be a, the valedictorian of your class with a 3.9 and can you get into the University of Florida? No. And so Jake will often say, like you're, you're, you, you, you can't go back and make something that is imperfect perfect anymore unless you move outside of the system and the laws. And so the only way for, for you and I to clean the stain of imperfection is sin is to go outside of ourselves, to outside of the, the human experience of trying to work things off, because in reality, we're tainted and marred by sin. And so the only way you could be accepted into the University of Florida is if someone who is in charge of letting you in shows you grace and mercy, and extends that grace and mercy to you, even though you don't have a perfect record, and gives it to you anyway, and then invites you to join the university. Because that's what the gospel is that you and I stand before God as if we're in a courtroom, condemned and guilty. There would be no point in even hiring a lawyer because you're guilty. And as we stand there before the judge, the great king of the universe, declared not guilty, his son comes down and says, I'm gonna give him my perfect standing instead. Punish me instead. I'll give him my righteousness my declaration of being declared not guilty. I'll give that to Kevin. I'll give that to my daughters and sons in this room if they simply believe by faith that I satisfied the wrath of God on the cross of Christ and then rose again. That's what I, that's what I will give. And so ultimately what Paul is saying here is that as he celebrates the gospel, he celebrates the fact that this is the only way to be reconciled to God the Father. That there is no other way to him. That every world religion teaches that if you work hard and do good things and, and try to be a good person and don't do bad things, that eventually you can kind of achieve this state of union with the creator or the maker. And Paul says that Christianity teaches something completely different. That the only way to achieve unity, to be adopted as sons and daughters of God, and to know him fully, is to receive the righteousness of God given to you through Christ and Christ alone. That man cannot be righteous on his own, and so he needed the righteousness of God to save us. And so let me run through a quick outline of the letter knowing that that's the theme of what Paul is trying to get across. That the gospel is the righteousness of God made manifest before us, okay? And so here's kind of how the outline is set up and I'm gonna kind of explain it to you the way that that, that Paul works through it. He's gonna logically work through questions and objections that people would have to the gospel on a logical level, and he's going to kind of build upon each argument in the letter. And so it's going to kind of be like almost like like walking through a philosophy class that as Paul's kind of building each argument, there's going to be an objection raised, and he's going to answer that objection, and he's going to answer the next objection that would come up until we kind of come to this place where we can say, well, I don't have any more questions on this then. That this seems to make logical sense. And so in in Romans chapter 1, kind of the first 17 verses, is just an introduction. He's saying hi to people in the letter. We're going to look at that closely today. He's going to briefly outline the gospel and then he's going to explain why he's writing the letter. But then immediately, what he's going to do is he's going to start in in, in chapter 1, verse 18, with what I like to call the bad news the bad news of humanity, right? And here's the question he's going to be answering How do we define good? Think about that for a second, because probably we don't walk around thinking about where that definition is derived from, but how do we define something as good or bad? Do we use politics? Do we use science? Do we use philosophy? Do we use the, the heritage given to us by our parents and our ancestors before us? How do we define what good is? And how can we know that that standard is the correct standard for what good is? Let me give you guys an example, okay? How many of you guys have ever played basketball with me? Okay. So I was out a couple weeks ago shooting hoops with my son. He's, he's five years old. He'll be six here in a couple weeks. And we've got the hoop lowered for him, and so I'm in, I'm in heaven while I'm out on that 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 back slab of concrete with him and so I'm dribbling around he's trying to play around with me and I'm dribbling around him doing all these crazy things and I'm dunking on him and all these things I mean I you know Russell Westbrook I'm real MVP right and Gideon's got this unrealistic view he's like man I think my dad's really good at basketball (laughs) okay then some of you guys come out with me on a Sunday night and we play with people that, that Brian works with in, in the CVS world, and a lot of pharmacists and pharmacy students will come out with us. That's kind of, for some reason, that's kind of been the group that ends up meeting with us on Sunday nights when we play basketball. And then you guys would come out there, and you'd be like, this guy is awful. He can't hit a shot. About the only thing he's good for is running up and down the court and getting in the way of someone else with the ball. He's terrible at basketball, which is true, right? This is one of those things where standard matters, Right? If you compare me to my six year old son Gideon, I'm the most fantastic basketball player in the world. You move even the standard of what it means to be good just a tiny little bit to some college students in pharmacy school and some pharmacists here in Gainesville who probably played basketball past the, the participation trophy age, which is where I quit. I'm terrible. I don't don't match up to the standards any longer of being able to play basketball with people. I go out to exercise. That's it. That the standard shows that in that moment, what are you comparing good to? If I'm comparing being good at basketball to beating a kindergartner, I'm doing great. Once we get to middle school, I'm in a lot of trouble, Right? It works the same way with trying to define what morally good is as human beings. Right? My favorite thing to do, right, is when I'm out sharing with people is ask them if they're perfect. Never once had a single person tell me that they're perfect, even when many of them believe in moral relativism. Right? I had a at a time where when I was living in Virginia and I was out on campus with my pastor and we were talking with this guy. He's like, no, 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 moral truth is, is all relative. You can't tell me what right and wrong is. You know. And so I'm like, okay, this is self-defeating because he's using an absolute to claim that there's no absolute, but that's fine. We'll, we'll kind of work through this. So I'm talking with him. And I, you know, I think I just had this killer argument. And I'm telling this guy, I'm like, you know, man, like, you know, what if I stole from you or killed somebody you loved? Like, how would you feel about that? He's like, well, I wouldn't like it, but I wouldn't try to, I wouldn't try to stop you, and, I, you know, I wouldn't think you should be accused of any crime, right? Because, you know, that, in that situation, it might be okay for you. You know, so I'm, I'm going back and forth. Some of you guys are like, what? Yeah, this guy was crazy. Okay, so I'm using all these words to try to convince this guy. My pastor's standing there with me because he was letting me lead the conversation. And I kid you not right, and he can get away with this because he was in his 60s, right? He looks at the guy and goes, you're wrong. Picks up the guy's laptop and just walks off. <laughs> I'm not making this up, this is a true story, by the way, 100%. For a second, the guy looks at me, he's like, is he really leaving? I was like, dude, he, to- he just stole your laptop, bro. You told him it was okay. <laughs> so you guys sit there for a second. What do you think the guy did? He got up and ran after my pastor and got his laptop back, right? Because even though intellectually he decided, hey, there's no moral standard, there's no moral good here, he didn't even believe what he was saying that he believed when it came to practice. Right, because there's something innately inside of us as human beings that we know at our core what right and wrong is, even if we choose to follow it or not. Right, that, and Paul's gonna make this argument that God himself, right, put it on our hearts to know right from wrong. That we don't even need the Bible to explain to us what God believes and knows to be true because we transgress the law of morality even on our hearts. That many of us know what right and wrong is from an early age and still choose to transgress against it anyway. And so Paul is making this argument that morally every human being has a conscience and transgresses against it. And because we transgress against that conscience, whether they grew up Jewish and knew the law of God like Paul, or they grew up in Rome and had never heard anything about God, they still stand condemned before him because they choose to ignore morality and good and right and wrong. And Paul's argument then is because everyone does that, we don't meet the standard of God because we are not holy. Therefore, we stand condemned to die eternally before the judgment of God the Father. That's the argument he makes in Romans 1, 18 to 320. Now, the good news is that the letter doesn't stop there, right? Because could you imagine coming here every week and me just telling you how terrible you were and that there was no hope for you? Because that's the argument that Paul makes in the first part of Romans. He says, you're terrible, you're worse than you think you are, most of you guys compare yourself to Hitler, that's not good enough. You need to compare yourself to perfection, then see how you're doing. Right? Many of us even play this game where we compare ourselves to other Christians around us. It's like, well, you know, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. That's not the standard. The standard is God and perfection. And Paul says, you all transgress from that, therefore you stand condemned before him. Now the amount of counseling that would need to go on is if we only ever preach that would be astronomical in this church. So the question then comes, people are like, okay, like, you know, Paul's answering this objection of where good is derived from and how we relate to God. Well, the next question that kind of arrives then is, well, wait a minute, if this is, if this is all there is for us, if this is all the bad news there is, what is our hope? What would our hope be then, Paul? If we're really this jacked up, what is our hope? And so Paul's like, well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked. And he gets to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 5, and he's going to talk about this. God is our hope. It's the biblical term, justification. Justification. Right, when he says in Romans 1.17 that God is our righteousness, what he's saying there is that Jesus, as a substitute in our place, secured for you and I a salvation that led to the forgiveness of sins and adoption as sons and daughters of God the Father. That that is what God secured to us in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that therefore means that we do nothing to earn God's favor that it doesn't matter how good of a person you are, the reason you are adopted as a son or daughter of God the Father is solely because of what Jesus Christ did for you. That if you stand before the throne room of judgment one day and God says to you, why should I let you in? The only answer you can give is because Jesus Christ died for my sins. That is the only answer that is acceptable before God. If your answer is Jesus Christ died for my sins and I was a pretty good person, Jesus Christ died for my sins and I was a missionary, Jesus Christ died for my sins and I was heavily involved in my church, Jesus Christ died for my sins and I led a Bible study, God doesn't want any of the extras. He solely looks upon the righteousness of Christ, and if you are in him, you are adopted as a son or daughter. You cannot earn God's favor. It's given to you by grace through faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son. And so we've gone from hey, look, there's, like, what, what's going on? How do, we, how do we define good? And then we say, well, okay, wait a minute. This is terrible. Uh, I'm a sinner. I'm standing condemned before God. Where's my hope? And so Paul shares our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone and by faith in him. And so the next question is, is well, wait wait a minute. If it's solely by what Jesus did and the gospel was really that good, that probably means this, and I can live however I want, Right? I could do whatever I want, live however I want, act however I want, talk to people however I want, sleep with whoever I want, do, it, do whatever I want, whenever I want. That's the next common thing that people are going to logically go to. And Paul goes, well, I'm glad you asked. And so in Romans chapter 6, he's going to answer that question. He's going to say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And he's going to start talking about what we call as sanctification, Meaning that as a Christian, if you are justified, declared not guilty because by faith you are in Christ, that what happens to you is this process called sanctification where God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is changing you and molding you into the image of Jesus Christ. And that over time, you will start to look more and more like your Savior, and so he's going to spend three chapters, starting in chapter 6, talking about how the gospel both frees us from the law, but it frees us not to do whatever we want, but to obey God fully. That it frees us for the first time to obey him without any strings attached. Right? Like, let me give you an example of what I mean by this. In my house, there are rules with my kids, okay? And, and one of the rules is we have fun. Okay. Rule number 2 in our house is that we have fun without killing ourselves. And frequently, my children hate rule number 2. They view dad as evil because I would prevent them from bringing serious bodily harm to themselves. Okay? And so the the way this kind of fleshes itself out is that Jackie and I discipline our children to protect them from themselves. And so oftentimes, right, we'll be disciplining them, and when they know what rules are, they choose to obey, not because they love mom and dad and care for us so much and because they're a member of our family, that they choose to freely obey. No, they choose to obey why? To avoid punishment. And when you are under the law and you are not in Christ, any time you are choosing to obey the laws and the commands, you are doing so out of a motivation to avoid hell. That's Paul's argument, but that if you are in Christ, the judgment has already been stamped and sealed. You've already been declared not guilty, and it's just like America. If you are declared not guilty at trial, you can't be tried again, and so God declares us not guilty, and so then it's like, well, we can live how we want, and Paul says, no, you won't do that because you'll be so enamored with what God has done for you. You're free to obey him out of love instead of out of duty and obligation and fear. That what motivates obedience to the law of God is love for him and what he's done for you in a true and sincere worship instead of fear of punishment and future damnation. Now, if someone claims to know God but refuses to love his commands and obey him, not saying they're perfect, but they refuse to accept the law of God as true and good over their lives and to obey, what they are demonstrating is that they truly never knew God to begin with. Because those that are truly of God grow to hate their sin and repent of it. You will not become sinless on this side of heaven, but you will be working out your sanctification and putting sin to death. And so this inevitably leads to another question that that Paul has to answer then. He says, okay, wait a minute. Okay, I can't live however I want, but I'm still sinning. I still catch myself sinning at times. Will I ever stop sinning? Like on on this side of eternity. And so we get to Romans 7 and says, well, Paul says, no, that the power of sin is still present in our body. And the gospel and the Holy Spirit are at work in our lives, dwelling in us to destroy it in time. But the future promise of glory is when we'll see that as a reality. And so it becomes this question, how do I reconcile all this? How can I still be sinning, but be putting sin to death, but still be declared not guilty? And so you get to Romans 8, and Paul says this in Romans 8, that you are currently being sanctified by confessing sin, repenting of it, and putting it to death But in Romans 8.1, he says that all of this is centered and rooted in the knowledge of knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That all of this is motivated in knowing that God has secured for you a salvation and a declaration of being not guilty because of Jesus Christ. That you know the verdict is in, even though you continue to sin. And so here here we get right, Paul's been working through all these questions. He's been working through all these objections. Okay, and so then the next question will be this. Okay, I'm still going to struggle with sin, but I know that God declares me not guilty in the end. That's what the scripture teaches. But here's the big question. How can I know that I'm really in Christ? How can I know that I'm really saved? How how can I be assured of that? How can I know that I'm going to see it through to the end? How can I know all this? And here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. He introduces what's known as the doctrine of election. Right, and, this, and some of us get a little w- weary about this. We freak out a little bit. But here's what the Bible says. That before the foundation of the world, God chose you to be in Christ. This means you didn't have any amazing part in your salvation story, but that God chose to save you, and you responded. And because of that, he, because he chose you, the responsibility then for the keeping of that salvation belongs to him, not to you. Right, we saw in Jude verses 24 and 25 last week. Will you throw that up there for me, Brent? Right, we finished up the book of Jude last week, and this is exactly what we were talking about. Right, look at verse 24. Now to him, that's in regards to God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. That God promises, if you know the gospel, if you've embraced Christ as Savior, if you know him as Lord, God, and King, he promises to keep you, and he does not fail. If you want more information on that, I would encourage you to listen to last week's podcast because we go in incredible depth about that. But what drives you, as Paul says in Romans chapter nine, is that you know you're saved by your faith in Christ, not in your own performance. Because here's the reality, guys. I've been a Christian now for about 12 years. And and as I shared with you guys last week, my life looks a lot different now than it did 12 years ago. Many of the sins that I was heavily steeped in 12 years ago, deep sexual sin, addiction to pornography, right? Being just a terrible friend and brother and son, right? God has redeemed many of those things in me. And so it would be easy to think that I've arrived, right? Because I don't do those things anymore. And yet the reality is is that I've grown in Christ and I've been encouraged by his word more and the more that those surface level sins that I was committing were put to death by the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, I started realizing that there was another layer to that sin underneath there and the reason why I was running to things other than God in the first place. Full disclosure, your pastor loves himself way too much and often worships himself instead of the God who created him. Daily, there's a battle waged internally inside of me for my affections on whether I will worship the God who made me and spoke and breathed life into me or if I will worship the very thing that he created, which is me. Daily, that battle wages inside of me. And, and so if you would think by looking at my life, like Kevin would be so excited all the time because he's not involved in those crazy right, sins that he used to be a part of. But the reality of my sin, as it gets deeper and deeper, I see more how rooted it is. And the only thing that gives me hope to keep going and to keep driving Each and every day in ministry with my family, with my wife, personally, in my own devotions with the Lord, the only thing that drives me is knowing that I am declared not guilty based upon the work of Jesus Christ and not my own. That if I rest in any other thing, any other performance, I am going to be depressed I'm going to be miserable because the more I examine myself, the deeper my sin goes. And yet the promise of the scripture is that my God gloriously loves me, that he gloriously saves me, and that he gloriously keeps me. And then Paul goes on to answer one last big theological question. He's like, look, you you can't do anything to earn God's love. You can't do anything to earn his favor. He promises to keep you. He's going to walk you through sanctification. There's nothing you can do. Just observe the process. Confess sin, repent, follow along. And so the next question that's going to come then was, well, wait a minute. If you talked about all this, what about the Jews? What about the Jewish people who Jesus himself said that he came to save first? Is God done with them? And so Paul Paul gets to Romans chapter 11. He says, no, God still has a plan for them. He's not done. There's still work to be done. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God is redeeming all things to himself. He's redeeming all people groups to himself. That all of creation groans, right, for God to set things right and that Christ is restoring all things to him. And so then when we get to chapter 12, Paul moves from dealing with these theological issues to answering this question. This is what he's going to do for the remainder of the book. He's going to answer this practical question. Well, wait a minute. If God saves us and declares us not guilty based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his performance instead of ours, will this then cause Christians and the human race to become lazy and immoral and to not work? I know what you said theologically, but practically, won't it still lead to this? And Paul's answer in those chapters, chapters 12 through 16, is no. Because the reality is is that if you've been truly gripped by what I've been talking about this morning, about the salvation that God offers us in Christ, that the gospel changes everything. That if you're in Christ for any season of time, you know this, the gospel changes how you love. That the good news of Jesus Christ changes how you worship and who you worship. That the good news of Christ changes how you minister and serve people. The good news changes how you pray. It changes what your affections are and what you care for. That over time, because God has promised to keep you and you are in Christ, God changes and moves your affections and stirs them for him instead of creation. That God moves you. And because that's a reality, it works itself out. That Christians, by definition, serve, love, and care for the world around them in a way that the rest of the world cannot because God has freed them from loving themselves. It changes us drastically. So that's it. That's what we're going to study over the course of the next 10 to 11 months. So I want to finish by looking at the text that Allie read to us earlier today. And it's, it's really easy to just say, well, wait a minute. This is just an introduction. What, what could really be here, Kevin? What are you possibly going to talk about? You know, it's, it's seven verses. What could possibly be here? But look at this. I want you to notice six key things that even in this brief introduction to the book of Romans, Paul lays out about how important the gospel is. Look, starting verse one, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So the first thing that Paul shows us there as he's writing this letter to the church in Rome is that the source of the good news is God. That the gospel is of God and from God. That this isn't man-made. This isn't something man has made up to try to control, right, political, you know, factions within Rome or whatever else. That, That God has revealed this to us both in the Old Testament through prophecy and then through the life of his son, Jesus Christ. That this good news about who we are as human beings and what God has done for us is solely from God. It belongs to him, that this is God's message, that the very existence of the church is based upon the good news of what God has done, not what our church is doing. And that anything our church does or any other ministry does, any good thing they do is to the glorious praise of God and what he's done for us, not the people in it. The best part of this church, guys, is not you. It's Christ and what he's done for you and that you're here to worship him with us if you are here for any other reason other than to give praise and glory to God for what he's done for you, you're here for the wrong reason. That we pray and we long to see God be made much of. This is why we gather together. This is why we worship together. This is why we serve together. This is why we minister together because the gospel makes much of him because it's from him. And that we, in some small way, get to come alongside that and make much of it. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle, but it's all because of God and what he's done. I'm just a messenger. I'm a messenger of the good news of what he's done and what he's done for me. Now, if you look at verses 3 and 4, he's going to tell us what the focus of the gospel is. Concerning who? His son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The source of the gospel is from God, but the focus of the gospel is on Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. That's why you'll hear us say around here from time to time, it's all about Jesus. That's it. Do we have doctrinal beliefs at this church? Yes. We care about them. And we hold to them as tightly as we need to in as so much as they revolve around the good news of Jesus Christ. If your doctrinal beliefs deny the deity of Jesus Christ, we're not on the same team. If your doctrinal beliefs argue about the time that Jesus is gonna reappear in glory, cool, we can be on different teams on that one, I don't care. I'm talking about eschatology right now, right? That the, that the source is from God, but the focus is on his son and what he has secured for us. That we're here to worship Jesus. That in our remaining time on this earth, you are an ambassador for Christ. And he's gonna move on towards this, the second half of verse four, right? He's gonna give us the proof of how we know this can be true. He says, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by what? His resurrection from the dead. That the proof of Jesus being the Messiah and the Christ and the Savior that we've longed for is in the resurrection. That we can look to the resurrection and know, yes, this is of God. Yes, this is of him. Yes, we should be worshiping Jesus as our God and our king. And he's gonna move on, and he's gonna give them the purpose of the gospel and why he's not ashamed of it. Look at verse five. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The purpose of the gospel is that we might receive the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy towards our sins. And to be able to freely respond to the Father in obedience, by faith. That we are no longer under the law and the prophets, but we are under the law of Christ we have been set free by him. That is the purpose of the gospel. And then he's gonna talk about the recipients of the gospel, right? He says that in the last part of verse five. He says, among all the nations by faith, that every tribe, nation, and tongue will one day stand before Jesus Christ and confess him as God and king. Then lastly, number six, in verses five through seven, he's gonna answer why God does this in the first place. Have you ever thought about why, if you've been a Christian for any season of time, why does God save me? Why did God do this? Why did God send his only son to die on my behalf for my sins and my rebellion? Was it because I'm some great person? Was it because God, and this is, this, is, this is theology that creeps into churches. It's because God just couldn't go on without me. Right, you're just so great that God had to save you. That's 21st century pop psychology. It's not what the Bible teaches. Okay, I know that you got a participation trophy in soccer growing up. I know, just like my kid's kindergarten teacher tells my son every day that he's a, just a beautiful little ladybug, Right, and that school taught you the same thing. Right, you're just so precious and so perfect and so amazing, and everyone loves you. Right, and you just be the best you that you can possibly be. Right, and that that's crept itself into the church, meaning that Jesus died for you because he just he loves you so much that he couldn't live without you. God does love you, but it's not because of you. And that's good news. God chose to love you. And he chooses to save you for his own glory. See, God is made much of because he saves the very ones that were open in sin and rebellion towards him. The scriptures say that God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, meaning that there was nothing of merit we were bringing to the table. And so, the, so you might say, well, God, yeah, God had to love me, right? He created me. Yes. Yes and amen. But you were doing nothing to merit or deserve that love. He was motivated instead not by you, but by himself. He was motivated by the fact that, but in his very character and nature, he chose to love and rescue you. And look at what he says. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for what? The sake of his name. including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. Guys, you were saved not to become a better you, not to have your best life now, not so you could get over your depression or whatever else you you may be struggling with or your own sin to feel better about the sins you've committed or the moral ambiguity that you find yourself in. God saved you to the praise of his glorious name. And therefore, if you are in Christ, you make much of him, because you are in him. Guys, we can often overlook these little introductions, of these letters, and yet in this one, what we get is this glorious picture of a God who is the source of all things his son who is the focus of all things. The proof that he provided that his son should be that focus through the resurrection of his son after death. The fact that he's our savior and king not based upon our own merit but because of who he is for his glory. Some of you guys, I I know that we've got larger numbers because college students are back in town and, and many of you guys are gonna do the whole church shopping thing and you're gonna hop around and you're gonna land somewhere. And whether you end up here at Aletheia walking through your time here with us trying to become more like Christ and make much of him or not, first of all, please get plugged into a local church that is focused on making much of Jesus while you're here. But this morning, if you take away one thing from this time. Please take this away. You are messed up. You are. You're more messed up than you're even willing to admit to yourself. You're more messed up than your mom or dad will tell you. You're more messed up than your own best friend will admit to you. You're more broken than you'll be willing to admit to yourself. You'll look at your life and you'll see your brokenness and then to to cope with it, you'll start comparing yourself to someone else who's more jacked up because there always is somebody. You are more messed up than you ever would imagine. You are far worse off in comparison to the holiness of God than you ever dare dream. Yet you are more loved and accepted, and known, and adopted, and forgiven, and shown mercy in Christ, than you would ever dare believe. There are things about you that are so wicked that you don't even realize them yourself, but guess who does? Your heavenly Father who sent his only Son to die for that wickedness. And he invites you to come along. To receive that forgiveness and that grace and that mercy. He invites you to be in him. He invites you to trust him by faith. And if you are in him this morning, here's his his encouragement to you. Life looks messy right now. Guess what it is? There's grace for you. My son died for you. I forgive you. There's grace for you. Mad at, mad at him? Think that you've messed up too much? He's got broad shoulders. He can handle it. Right? He created and spoke the universe into existence, and he's promised to see you through until he returns. He can and will change you. Trust Him. Trust in Him. Don't trust in me. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your Bible study leader. Don't trust in your friends. Don't trust in your ministry. Trust in the one whom all those things are supposed to be centered around in the first place, and that's Jesus Christ In Him alone. We're going to take communion here in just a minute. We do this every week at Aletheia. And what we're doing when we take communion is we're coming up and we're identifying with the fact that God gave up his own flesh and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so Christians, right? when you come up here, right, you need to make sure that you're ready to worship him when you're doing that. Because that's exactly what we're doing when we take communion. We're worshiping. We're saying, I couldn't pay the penalty for my own sins, but God has praise and glory be to his name. And as you partake in his flesh and you drink the grape juice, which represents his blood, what you're saying is, is God took on the wrath for my sin. And instead of condemning yourself, and beating yourself up, what you can instead do is, I'm free, I'm free of that sin I commit. I can rejoice and celebrate in what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so as you take communion, it's not a time of mourning, it's a time of rejoicing in what God has already done for you. And so we're gonna play a song and I invite you to come up and take communion and take it back to your seat and just sit there and pray and reflect and then magnify and worship through prayer the God who saved you. If you're not a Christian here this morning, please do not take communion. It's not that I don't love you. It's not that you can, you know, I'll buy you a loaf of bread and some grape juice if you really want it, okay, if you're that, if you're that into it. But if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, that doesn't mean anything to you because you don't believe that Christ has really died for your sins, and what the scriptures say is that if you've heard this message that I've been proclaiming this morning and then come up to the table to receive communion, you're heaping up wrath and judgment on yourself because you've rejected the good news of what God has done. And so instead, I would, sit, I would invite you to sit there and reflect, hey, like, is what Kevin talking about this morning, does this make sense? And then I would extend the invitation to you to confess your sin and place your trust in the only place where it can be found trustworthy, and that's in Jesus Christ who died for that sin. And that you can begin today, right, living for him. As the reason we're here this morning is to worship him. That's it. We're here to do it in song. We're here to do it in the proclamation of his word. We're here to do it in prayer. We're here to do it in communion. And then we're gonna do it in about five minutes in baptisms. Where three awesome people are going to stand before you and tell you what Jesus has done to save them, and that they're identifying with Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Guys, I love you. I love you enough to tell you the truth. You're jacked up, just like me. God is there for you. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us, demonstrated through the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of your son. The mercy and grace that we were shown that that we do not deserve. Father, thank you for the men and women here this morning. Thank you that it's not an accident that they're here this morning. Lord, whether they're followers of you in here this morning or not, Lord, call to them. Comfort them. Remind them of your promise to keep them and see them through if they simply trust and believe in you. Father, help me to lay down at your feet my own self-righteousness and my own self-sufficiency and to instead trust in the mercy and grace of your Son. Father, thank you for this time. May we continue to worship and glorify you with all we say and do for the remainder of this morning. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. You guys, I love you.